All right. Why don't you turn to Zechariah chapter 7, please. Zechariah chapter 7 and 8 tonight, the visions imparted to Zechariah are through. Um, visions are while you awake, dreams are while you asleep. He was having visions. They were all imparted in one night from chapter 1 to chapter 6, verse 8. Um, Joshua has been crowned as a prophetic type of the Messiah who will be crowned to reign in the millennial kingdom in chapter 6, verse 9 through 15. And the remainder of Zechariah from chapter 7 to 14 will deal with the prophetic revelation, not with visions. They're both divine, but the mode that is given is different. One's a vision while he's awake, the other one is prophetic uh, prophecies that are revealed to him. Chapter 7 and 8 deal with um, a group of men that come seeking the Lord to ask questions from Babylon, whether they should continue to observe certain fast days and feast days that they had established. And um, we'll see that God never intended these. And as we said this morning, there are many things that are practiced by Christians or by Christian churches that really have no affiliation or association or scriptural background for it. They just do these things as a means to appear spiritual or to pass themselves off as spiritual, but it has nothing to do with the Word of God. And sometimes people get um, caught up more in man's traditions than what the biblical scriptures command us and instruct us to live out. And so there's always that danger. Remember always that God is speaking to his people here in the Old Testament. He's always chasing them, instructing them, guiding them, telling them to obey him. He's not dealing with the world. And in the New Testament, the Lord is dealing with his church. And the church is the extension to reach the lost world. And he's always warning the church, always warning the believer, always instructing the believer to abide, to continue, to be used of God, to reckon the old man dead. It's a constant uh, exhortation. And so uh, chapter 7 here, um, all the way to the end of chapter 8, we have the preference of God is obedience rather than fastings or rituals or any type of religious ceremony or celebration of fees, whether they be joyous or sad, it makes really no difference. So in chapter 7, verse 1 through 3, we have the delegation from Babylon to inquire from God regarding fasting specifically. He says, Now in the fourth year of King Darius, it came to pass that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month of Shishlub, when the people sent Sherezer and Regan Melech and his men to the house of God to pray before the Lord and to ask the priests who were in the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I have done? For so many years. Um, Remember that the children of Israel had been put into captivity for 70 years. 
Uh, they were placed there because they had disobeyed the word of God. They had turned their backs on God. The northern kingdom first to Assyria, um, kingdom of idolatry. Judah didn't learn. Then Babylon took them into captivity under three sieges. And here the date is the fourth year of King Darius. Again, um, December uh, the 4th of um, 518. Again, the time of the Gentiles. Kings of the Gentiles are reigning me. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Then there's a break, the time of the church. And the ultimate will be the ten-nation confederacy of ten toes of iron and clay uh, of the image of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, the time here is really 23 months after the visions, if you compare this date with that of chapter 1, verse 7. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah. And again, remember that... Um, uh, the temple building had been stopped, but uh, Darius confirmed the uh, edict and decree by Cyrus, and they continued the work of the temple. Uh, Ezra 6, 1, uh, verse 1 through 14 tells us that. And, um, and so now we've seen in Haggai chapter 1 where he calls the people to repentance, and Haggai and Zechariah are both prophets working uh, in this rebuilding of the temple together, and God is using both of them to encourage the people as they've repented, and they've been building the temple for two years. This is two years after that. It will be finished in the sixth year, uh, Ezra tells us, chapter 8, um, of, the, um, uh, of the finished work of the temple. And so God is the one behind the work. The delegation was sent um, by the people, and for two reasons, as we said this morning, one, to pray before the Lord. And here you have the names of these guys. They are um, Babylonian names. Uh, Sherezer means um, sent away or stretched out. And Rigan Milik means uh, dwelling. And his men are not numbered or named. But yet, many, um, some commentators uh, say that they came from uh, Bethel, north part of Israel, uh, up um, uh, by the Galilee above that. But yet uh, it says clearly they came to the house of God to pray, not from Bethel. And they would come just as in chapter 6, the company came with the silver, the gold to make the crown um, and to have it as a memorial there of the future fulfillment in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so again, when you look at scriptures, make sure that you observe, make good observations, only what's in the text, in the context. Don't read into it. Don't get clever. Don't take an acid trip. Just record what's there. And don't add to it. And that's good inductive Bible study. Um, they came to inquire again uh, in the house of God whether they should continue to fast because they made these feasts and fast days. And the fifth month was August of 586 B.C. in commemoration of the destruction of the temple. Jeremiah 52, 12 through 13 has it. And um, they asked the priests and the prophets. They're the overseers in the building of the temple here. They're ones encouraging the people and directing them. Um, and the captain of the armies of heaven, this title, we've mentioned it over and over again. You find it all over the place, okay? Um, it, it's, it, it's, it's the one who is the protector of Israel. But when Israel uh, does not walk with God, it be, he becomes the punisher of Israel. Uh, it goes back to the law of Deuteronomy 27, 28, of uh, the blessings and the cursings. Uh, Leviticus 26 also has that. And God keeps his word. 
And uh, he, he says, if you walk with me, then you'll walk in the light. You'll walk in my blessings. If you turn your back on me, then I will become your worst nightmare to an extent. And as we look at history, as we look at the scriptures and study, we see that God is um, of his word. He doesn't, um, he's not trying to intimidate us. He's not trying to put any kind of fear in us. He wants us to obey, realizing that he knows what's best for us and that the fear of the Lord would keep us um, depending on him. So these two prophets that's spoken about here are the two, Zechariah and Haggai. And um, when you get to verse 4 through 6, you have the first answer of God, where he accuses them of their sin of empty ritual and formality. Um, Verse 4 says, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned the fifth and the seventh month during the seventy years, did you really fast for me, for me? In other words, it's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. They didn't. They were just caught up in the ritual and the fasting and the appearance to be spiritual. But God is using sarcasm here. He's addressing, he's confronting them. Verse 6, when you eat and when you drink, now it's present tense. Do you not eat and drink for yourselves? The answer again, because the question is rhetorical, is yes. In other words, they weren't really doing it with concern for God. It was all about them. Verse 7, should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets? When Jerusalem, the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous, and the south of of the lowlands were inhabited? Once again, yes is the answer of verse 7. They should have obeyed. Again, all of these feasts, and you get them in chapter 8, you get some of those, and we mentioned them this morning. Um, the fourth month, they entered Jerusalem, uh, Jer- Jeremiah 52, 6 through 11. So they made that a commemoration. They celebrated and they fasted, but they really weren't concerned about it. The fifth month, the temple was burned, Second Kings 25, 8 through 9, and Jeremiah 52, 12. And the seventh month was when Gadaliah was left by Nebuchadnezzar, to the govern the nation, and they assassinated him in Second Kings twenty five twenty five, and Jeremiah forty one one and two. And the tenth month was the siege when it began, in Second Kings twenty five one and Jeremiah thirty one one. Now all these feasts are mentioned there in chapter eight verse nineteen, as we'll see. The um, Repeated phrase, for me, for me, affirms the, uh, the irony and the sarcasm uh, behind this as God addresses them. Um, they, they, they just weren't really concerned with God. And that can happen easily as we walk with just a mechanical mindset. After a while, we no longer have real passion for God or the things of God or the word of God or the work of God. And we just kind of just do this as our normal thing, just like, you know, anything else. We see this in everything in life. How everybody begins passionate when they first get their first job and they're excited. And then they say, ah, I'm going to stink and jam, get another one. And uh, the same with a car, the same with a wife or a husband or anything else. Right? You lose that passion, all of a sudden, you know. 
What's next? Then it's a church. It's a carryover value for our sinful nature, our self-centeredness, our love for self. And we have to be careful as men and women of God. Um, the practice revealed that it had become pure ritual formality. They were serving their own purposes rather than genuine obedience. Um, God's fast, um, you get a chance, read Isaiah 58, verse 1 through 10. He tells you what his true fast is, is doing justice, loving, being compassionate, doing the right things. That's God's true fast. He's not interested in ritual. He's not interested in seeing how long can go without food. Fasting is, a, is something that we're to do when we're seeking God because we, we want to hear from him. We want to hear his answer, yes, no, or direction. And it's a time when I just give myself to him, not some mechanical thing that if I do this, then God is going to guide me or he has to guide me. No. But I'm showing God my heart that I love him. I want his will. And uh, when I lose that aspect, then I get into formalities and rituals and I put my faith and my trust in those rather than God. And so verse 7 is clear there. Even though he was blessing, you know, he that were in sin and they were rebelling. And doing all this. And God still continued to bless. But they didn't reflect on that. Almost like an entitlement, right? You owe it to me, right? As if God could wink at our sin. As he didn't with theirs, he won't with ours. So the reproof by God of their past disobedience. They should have obeyed in verse 7. But they did not. The word Yahweh came by way of the former prophets. All the minor prophets, all the major prophets, pre-captivity. Over and over and over again, around 237 years. God was very patient. Whenever you see God's judgment, it's always a strange way of him dealing with us, Isaiah says. He would much rather forgive. He says, come, let reason together, let's... You know, your, your sins are red as crimson. They'll be white as snow. He wants to forgive. But when people keep going and going and grieving, there's a line that God draws and he can't do nothing but bring judgment. He doesn't do it with any sense of satisfaction, but he must do it because he's a holy God and he cannot compromise his holiness and his attributes. Yet he will work within the measures that he's set up through the Son, Jesus Christ, in the time of grace and the opportunities given to individuals to respond and to call upon him. And he will be just and he will be fair and he will be merciful. He will be loving. You will never be able to accuse God of not being any of those things. I've mentioned often that he waited 120 years in the days of Noah. How long would you have waited knowing no one was going to repent? He waited for 400 years to give the land to Israel. That means the Hittites, the Jebusites, and all those ites. Somehow, in a way that you and I do not know, God gave them that time to repent. So that means he revealed himself. 
And when they did not repent, he brought judgment upon them and gave Israel the land. Don't believe the uh, Palestinian thing that they just got booted out of the land. You ever read Palestinian in the Old Testament? Never. There's never been such a thing. The land of Palestine was named Palestinia by the Romans, an insult to the Jews after their enemies, the Philistines, insulted the land, 132 B.C. No one, no one before 1955 would have called themselves a Palestinian. Anybody who was called a Palestinian was a Jew that was left in the land. Do your history study. Simple. So all this fabricated history is all politically engineered for the world conquest of Islam. It has nothing to do with the Bible or anything else. It's all political from the pit of hell. And so, here again, God shows uh, his love, his concern. In spite of their sin, he's still blessed. Look at your own life and mine. How many times God could have smoked us? Or should have smoked us? He gave us time to repent, did he not? Gracious, gracious. Verse 8 through 14, the second answer from God, he requires repentance not ob and obedience. In 8 down to 10, you have the past requirements of God that were clearly proclaimed. He says, then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, there is a captain of the armies of heaven again. Execute true justice, show mercy and compassion, everyone to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien, the poor. Let none of them plan evil in his heart against his brothers. And so justice, that um, aspect of, of true judgments by the judges, not corrupting the legal system, uh, Jefferson said, if there's any way that our nation's going to go wrong, the United States is going to be in the judicial system. And such is the case. Look at these little puny little gods contradicting the highest authority of the land of the president's office. That's where it's gone wrong. The judicial system is to execute the law, not to make laws. Congress makes laws, which they have failed to do. And so they've conflated the three separate branches that are supposed to be checks and balances, and they've corrupted them. And so you have anarchy. Please do not misunderstand. There is anarchy now as a rule of the land. Soft anarchy, but anarchy anyway. We are no longer a nation under the rule of law. No one has gone to jail for eight years in the political arena. Half of them should be in jail. And they are not. You do something, they'll put you so deep in jail, they have to pump sunlight to you. It's a different America. But we're right on schedule. The Lord is coming. No big deal. 
compassion, mercy, hesed, loving kindness, steadfast love, a covenant, word, compassion, pity, everyone to his brother, not oppressing the defenseless, the widow, the fatherless, those that were more vulnerable, those that couldn't fend for themselves, uh, no financial um, uh, supply for the widow, aliens and poor, those that were coming into the land. Throughout the law, God hits the widows, the fathers, the poor, the stranger, hard. Remember, you were a stranger in Egypt. Do not treat the stranger wrong. And he exhorts them and commands them. Let none of you plant evil in his heart against his brother. In other words, the problem is there, the heart of man, and he'll deal with it again. It's evil, desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9. In verse 11, down to 12, the past rebellion of the people is now taken up. He says, but they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders, and stopped their ears so that they would not hear. He's talking about their fathers. They just put their hands over there. They shrugged their shoulders demonstrably, physically, saying, God, I don't want to hear your voice. And to the prophets, get away from here. Being disrespectful both to God and the prophets. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, hard, like a diamond. Refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. And great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. You see, when that wrath comes, that intensity of wrath and judgment, indignation, is not because God can't wait to do it. God will do everything he can. Before he brings judgment. But he demonstrates here very vividly the way they were, they were outwardly demonstrating the putting of the hands to their ear, the getting the shoulder and don't guide me. You ever have your son or daughter and you, you see him acting, you grab him by the shoulder and they go, and they pull away. You go, ooh, don't pull away. Disrespectful, right? Very vivid. We understand these things very, very clear here. And so, um, God is not happy about it. He had to judge them. But he does not do it because he loves judgment. In fact, he sent his son to die for us. And he put all the judgment on him. That's how much he loves us. Verse 13, he says, Therefore it happened that just as he proclaimed, and they would not hear, so they called out, and he would not listen, saying, says the Lord of hosts. So they wouldn't listen. Then God would do the same thing. There would come a point where God would no longer listen to them. That's that line that is drawn. The Proverbs of, and the, personified as a woman in chapter 2 or chapter 1 speaks out about the simple one who doesn't want to hear and doesn't want wisdom. And he says, I'll, I'll, I'll let you go. I'll laugh at you when your calamity comes in you. And you will call, but I will not answer any longer. Everyone knows that pain that there is when there's a wayward child and you do all that you can and you try what you can and there comes a time when there is nothing else you can do 
And you have to draw that line, and it's never with a, a pleasure or a, a contentment. It's with a broken heart. But to do otherwise is to be more guilty than the one who is offending. Because now you're part of it. You're facilitating. You're permitting. Welcome to our society of entitlement and lawlessness and anarchy. It's driven by intimidation and selfishness. And uh, it's an ugly, ugly picture. 14 says, But I scattered them where the world went among all the nations which they had not known. Thus the land became desolate after them, so that no one passed through the re- uh, or returned, for they made the pleasant land desolate. Notice God takes his responsibility of judging them. Absolutely. But then he says, you are responsible for the desolation of the land because I wanted to bless you. I would have blessed you. I would have just directed. I would have guided you. But you chose to rebel, to disobey. You chose to put your faith in these rituals, these empty things that really do nothing for me. I wish you would just close your doors. We're going to see when we get to Malachi. And you would just not even walk in. The tables are full of vomit. You know, I, 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 I can't take it anymore, God says. And I think sometimes he looks down on some of the people in the church and some of the churches that are going on today and, and he says the very same thing. We must remember that God is very patient, very loving. And so the failure is not on God's part at all. It's always on our part, always. And so, now in chapter 8, Verse 1 through 17, we have the third answer from God as we've gotten the first two in response there. Um, It's repentance leads to restoration and blessing. Now, verse 1 through 8, Jerusalem is spoken about here in the future kingdom. This chapter is still being addressed and directed to the delegation that came So don't let the chapter throw you off. This is still part of the stuff that's being told to these guys. They are in a very difficult strait right now. They're coming out of the captivity. It doesn't look like much right now, but God is working again. And he's going to encourage them in the work they're doing in a little section. But the majority of this chapter gives them the great hope of the millennial kingdom. When Jesus will reign on the earth and Israel will be there with her, Israel will be reconciled back to uh, to him as that adulterous wife. And he focuses on that. Um, Zechariah has more material on the millennial kingdom than all the minor prophets put together. It's amazing. When we get after this chapter, we get from 9 to 14. It is just filled, filled with it. So let me read here verse 1 through 8, Jerusalem in the future. He says, And the word of the Lord um, of hosts came saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. With great fervor, I am zealous for her. Notice here, verse 1 and 2, the love of God for Zion. The chapter, again, is still directed to the delegation. The usual formula to validate the source of authority, the revelation of God here, the Lord of hosts. The Lord came to me, the Lord of hosts. Um, The ninth time it appears, the captain of the armies, it is the 27th time in the book. 
And the declaration of God is for Zion. Notice in verse 2. The Lord of hosts is repeated um, to emphasize the supreme authority. He now is no longer the punisher. He has chastened them. Now he wants to be the provider and the protector. And he's going to reveal all the things he's going to do for them. Thus saith the Lord appears 11 times in the 8th chapter. God declares three times his zeal for Zion or Jerusalem, which means jealous, qualified by great two times here and in chapter 1, verse 14. That means God loves Jerusalem and Zion greatly, and therefore he's jealous for it because his jealousy is not like our jealousy. His jealousy is perfect. He knows he's the best thing for the thing he chooses. My jealousy is because I love me and I want you just for me. God's jealousy is because he knows he's the best thing for me. And he wants to protect me. There's the difference. So never um, connect the jealousy of God with the jealousy of man. Verse 3 down to 6, the commitment of God to Zion in the kingdom age is given to us. He says, Thus saith the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, All men and all women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand, because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, it is a marvelous, uh, it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days. Will it also be marvelous in mine, says the Lord of hosts? Again, all these rhetorical questions have obvious answers. Notice God speaking directly to the people through the prophet that he would return to Zion to dwell in the midst, underline the midst of Jerusalem, verse 3. This can only be speaking about the kingdom age. When he was in the midst of his people was when he came the first time. They crucified him. This is when he will reign supremely. So the prophet goes from the present day to the kingdom age. He'll come back to the present for a little time, but he goes back to the kingdom age. Even though all of this seemed impossible to these guys, because they were looking at something that didn't look too promising, yet it was going to take place. It will. Nothing will stop God from fulfilling His promises to Israel. Listen to what Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six and 27. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentile has come in, the full number of people to be saved, and the rapture takes place. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer, listen, will come out of Zion. That's the second coming. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God is not through with Israel as many teach replacement theology. The church is not Israel. The church is the bride of Christ, virgin, looking and waiting for a wedding. The wife has been married 
and is put away by adultery. There's the difference between a virgin bride and a woman who has been married. And the Bible is very, very clear. Notice still in 3, Jerusalem on Mount Zion shall be called three things. The city of truth, the mountain of the Lord Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, the holy mountain. The millennial temple will stand there on Mount Zion. Jesus will stand, we'll get later on towards the um, 14th chapter where Jesus will come back, his foot will touch the Mount of Olives, it will split in two, the topography is going to change, the water source is going to come out, one to the Dead Sea to heal it, the other one to the Mediterranean, the topography there, uh, that we've been there, you, you guys have been to Israel with us, right there on the Temple Mount, it, right now the temple that is given in, as a pattern in Ezekiel 40 or 48, it would never fit there. He's going to redo that whole thing. And then it will fit. It's going to be a glorious day. The captain of the armies of heaven again, verse 4, declares the wholesome society, secure and peaceful in the kingdom age. All men and all women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. Safety, prosperity, peace. Now, though we see impart some of that now through the fulfillment of the nation of Israel coming back as a nation. We were there at the year of Jubilee. What a what a time. The streets, you couldn't even walk around. Everybody was jumping and dancing and just rejoicing. Old and children. Listen, the streets of Jerusalem are safer than the streets of Pasadena. Children are escorted everywhere with armed guards. They understand their situation. This kingdom age, prosperity, security. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing the streets. What better evidence of a healthy society when you have old and young and the kids and playing and enjoying themselves. You know, when I grew up, we went everywhere, man. I mean, I... We would go all over the place on our bike. We would go, we lived in Ball Park. We went down to L.A. We went down to, to the beach. We went everywhere. We didn't come back till nighttime. You can't do that today. There is no way. Our society is so dangerous. We've got so many weird people running around. And that day, it's going to be a glorious time. Jesus will be ruling and reigning Verse 6, the blessing from God will be expressed in great delight by the remnant of Israel. God will sow the same. He was just going to delight in that day. It's a rhetorical question. The declaration is a rhetorical question to affirm God's delight. If the people of the, of, of the people of God, the Jews, are going to be joyous in that day, how much more God? The climax, the fulfillment of all of that, two times is stated, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the protector the provider at this point of Israel. Look at 7 and 8. The remnant will rejoice with God in the regathering of the world. Uh, verse 7 and 8 says, um, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Notice God will deliver the Jews' remnant in the last day. I will, verse 7, I will. 
Notice the protector and defender of Israel. There it is. The Lord of hosts, the captain. I will save my people. I will. The context is the end of the great tribulation from the land of the east and from the land of the west. Underline those. The first three captivities were, they were dispersed to Egypt, north to Assyria and Babylon, never east and west. Not until after 70 AD when Titus did that. This is the regathering of the last days. God will assemble them in the city of God, Jerusalem. Look at verse 8. Tells you right there. It will take place because it says, I will bring them back. And they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. This is the millennial kingdom that he's talking about. It will be the reconciliation of the wife put away by adultery. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. 9 to 17, you have the exhortation and the promise to bless the people in the days of Zechariah. So he goes from the millennial kingdom, he comes back to the present day. Notice 9 through 10, the exhortation for encouragement. He says, thus saith the Lord of hosts, captain of the armies of heaven, let your hands be strong. You who have been hearing in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets who spoke in the day of the foundation that was laid for the house of the Lord of hosts that the temple might be built. So the affirmation here, um, he's encouraged them to strengthen their hands in the work. The word strong simply means to strengthen, to finish that work because it looked discouragement, all different ways, the opposition the message is addressed to the people hearing the prophetic word of Haggai and Zechariah to encourage them. They're called to repentance of chapter 1 of Haggai, chapter 1, verse 6 through 11. Zechariah also chapter 1. The time is confirmed by identifying the day of the foundation of the temple. So the context allows you to interpret whether he's dealing with the millennial temple still or he's coming back to it. So you've got to observe it real carefully. The days of the past were, was, uh, there was much employment, he goes on to say here in verse 10. He says, for before these days, the days that Zechariah and Haggai prophesied, there was no wages for men nor for hire for beasts. There was no peace from the enemies for whoever went out or came in. For I said all men everywhere against his neighbor. So in verse 10, remember he said in Haggai 1 6, uh, You have sown much, but you bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages and puts them in a bag with holes. If you are living apart from the Lord, you are spinning your wheels in vain. You would get much further with God. You know, the very first weekend that I was born again, I saved so much money. The very first weekend, I was financially ahead. Didn't go out and spend all kinds of money on booze and everything else and crash my car or I have to stitch up my hand or whatever or somebody's face 
impound your car. I was all kinds of money ahead. Now you add that up four times a month. Two days a week, that's eight nights. And if you were like me, there was a lot of in-betweens from Monday to Friday. You save yourself a heck of a lot of money. The heavens withheld the rains. The produce would not come. Haggai 1.10. The drought was brought by God. Haggai 1.11. Their, their crops were meager. Haggai 2.15-19. through 19. There was no safety in going in and out of the city walls. The enemy was out there here in verse 10. You couldn't go out and come in. Dangerous. The animosity towards the Jew was God's doing. He says, for I said all men everywhere against his neighbor. This was the consequence of judgment. Now they're coming to the end of it. And he's working. He's protecting them. And he's using Gentile kings to bring it about. But he's making the comparison. Especially with Haggai. You mark this day. From this day on how things are going to change. Mark my word. 11 through 15. The promise. Um, changed for their days here. Um, verse 11 says. But now. I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, says the Lord of hosts. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give fruit, the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of his people to possess, to possess all things. And it shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. Ooh. But now, verse 11, God will be the protector to the remnant. Far different from the former days, he would bring back the rain, bless the crops. The remnant would possess all things in verse 12. Very clearly a contrast between the days of Haggai and now these days. Chapter 2 of Haggai, 15 through 19. God promised that he had cursed them. But now he would bless them in verse 13. Again, it goes back to Deuteronomy 28 and 29. Leviticus 26, the covenant blessings and cursings. The promise to the house of Judah and Israel, notice. So far as God knows, there isn't a lost tribe at all. So much for the teaching of the lost tribes of Israel. They were not to fear, but rather allow their, their hands to work in the temple and to be strong and encouraged, for God was doing a great work. God, in the same way that he did, um, that they, he did not repent about judging them, but punished them due to their fathers provoking them to wrath of verse 14. So God now would determine to do good to Jerusalem and the house of Judah, and they were not to fear, verse 15. There's a change. What brought that change about? It was repentance. It was repentance. The minute that a person repents, then there's a change, a change of attitude of God to the person, the person to God. And there's a different relationship we have 
you're reconciled one with God. And so this section here is talking about the days of Zechariah and Haggai to encourage them. So he gives them a little view, a vision of the millennial temple, what God has for the Jewish nation. And notice this is way back, I mean, 518. You know, we're, we're in 2000, so this is 25 uh, 20, almost 2,600 years ago. And we don't know how long before the seven-year tribulation. And then will come the thousand-year reign that he's talking about. But it's coming. As sure as you're sitting here. Absolutely. So in 16 to 17, the repentance of the remnant would be marked by righteousness. Verse 16. He says, these are the things... You shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Now, is there anything wrong with that? Is that evil? Not at all. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. The gates were the place of, of leadership, of business, of calling, of making judgments. The judges would be there. True justice without favoritism, not taking bribes, not favoring one over the other. Let None of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. In other words, the motive of the heart, the deceitfulness, the attitude. Um, they were to guard their hearts. Uh, he, uh, Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart for out of it comes the issues of life. Uh, the heart of man is deceitful, Jeremiah 17.9. Jesus speaks, he says, it's from the heart that proceeds evil thoughts, fornications, adulteries, everything else. It's the heart. Too many people approach God intellectually like if they're so smart, they just can't, can't wrap their head around God. Well, you're going to wrap his hand around your head. Uh, you're not that smart. Your problem is your heart. problem is my heart. Evil, selfish, sinner. Unless I have a heart transplanted by God, there is no hope for me. None at all. They were to be honest in their business dealings and do not love a false oath. They were to know God abhors these things, for all these are things that I hate, says the Lord. So, you and I, as we study the Word of God, we are um, to know and we come to know the things that are very clearly abhorrent to God. And it's interesting, when we were in the world, we loved a lot of the things that God hated. Now, even though we loved those things, we knew they were destructive. When we were drinking and getting drunk and people getting loaded and stealing things out of cars and different things, we knew it was wrong. Might have been exciting and fun as you're growing up, but it, but you know it's wrong. But if you do those things long enough and and and, and as many times enough, pretty soon it doesn't bother you. Your callous becomes conscious. Your heart becomes hard. And, and when somebody calls attention to you, say what? Today you ask some young people. Hey, are you living with your girlfriend? What's the problem? They're not kidding. Stop and think how far we've come in this nation. 
where fathers, without any shame, without any apology, without any embarrassment, might have their daughter over for dinner with family or friends and and his daughter is living with a man and he'll say, oh, hi, this is uh, her boyfriend. They just moved in two years ago. 30, maybe 30 years ago, the majority still in America would be embarrassed and ashamed that their daughter was being treated like a whore and that the father was approving of it. How far we've come. How we have abandoned women. How we have degraded women. But see, men do not hold society together. It's the woman who holds society together. I grew up when there was good girls and bad girls. Okay? And usually that meant those who gave in sexually and those who didn't. And as prudish as that may seem, it brought health to society. You're always going to have men and women who get involved sexually. It's never going to change. But when society is held together and strong, the majority of the women hold a head of high in morality. Once the woman gives in and becomes like a man, society decays. And not one society of 50s have ever survived that. Ever. Ever. And so it's God's mercy and His grace that He can forgive us. He can make us new. But make no mistake. Each person makes a decision which way they're going to go. And that one action will affect the rest of your life. Not for good. If you obey God and you wait, you'll blow your mind. You get the best. Now thank God for God's grace. But those of you that are still out there waiting, hey, do not get weary. God will take care of you completely. And so verse 18 to 23, you have the feast of the past would be turned into great joy in the kingdom. Verse 18 says. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. The fast of the fourth month. The fast of the fifth. The fast of the seventh. The fast of the tenth. Shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feast. For the house of Judah. Therefore love truth and peace. Now, these feast days, God never intended. They put them. And God abhors these things. What he wanted was obedience. So he's calling them to repentance. The uh, fourth month was May. They entered Jerusalem in Isaiah 52. And so they commemorated that. The fifth month was August. The temple was burned in 2 Kings 25. The seventh month was October when Gadali was assassinated, 2 Kings 25. And the tenth month was January. The siege began in 2 Kings 25.1. And all these things God did. He only commanded one fast, the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. That's it. 
And so there's a lot of things that we can put in Colossians 2 speaks about those that say touch not, taste not, and, and they act all pious with all these rituals and all these ceremonies, and they don't help you to stop sinning. They just give an appearance that you're spiritual, but you're really carnal. You don't care about the things of God, you just care to appear spiritual. People go to church and, you know, as I said this morning, they slept with their boyfriend, girlfriend the night before. They got drunk. They got loaded. They, they stole a car, whatever it is. And here they are on Sunday morning sitting front row and center. Now, I'm glad they're here, but I hope they repent. To continue to come and continue to live that way and calling yourself a Christian is greater judgment. Don't worry about what I know. I'm not one. Worry what God knows. Listen to me. He knows everything. Nothing escapes him. And if we think it does, then we're deceiving ourselves. And so, these fast days and feast days, um, they shall be joy, turn into joy and gladness and cheerful. He goes back into the kingdom age. Okay? It's not going to be looking backwards. You're going to be looking forward in the kingdom. In verse uh, um, 20 to 23, the land of Israel and Jerusalem and the Jews here during the millennial kingdom. He says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Notice that in verse 20, the land of Israel will be inhabited by many. There's the millennial kingdom. The land of Israel will be a spiritual center of the world. Verse 21. It will seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go. Verse 22. Yes, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem, not New York, not L.A., not Paris, not Moscow, not Peking. Wow. The city of Jerusalem will be the political and spiritual capital of the world, verse 22, in the millennial kingdom. And 23, thus saith the Lord of hosts, in those days, the millennial kingdom, ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeves of a Jewish man and say, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Whoa. The Jews in the millennium will be looked up to in the relationship to God. Wow. Let us go with you. Almost an, an envy to be a Jew. Today the Jew is hated. The anti-Semitism of today is probably about the same level that was in Europe just prior to Hitler's advance. It is growing. And it's growing in the United States. And I believe anti-Semitism is from the pit of hell. I believe it's satanic, it's an antichrist spirit. Absolutely. The Bible is clear that Israel is the apple of God's eye. Now, 
We're not justifying, we're not defending for the things that Israel may do, but we are smart enough to know that God has made them his people. He has chastened them, he has judged them, he has dispersed them. He will deal with them in the tribulation period. The tribulation and great tribulation is for Israel to prepare her for the, her Messiah. As they will call upon him, as the Antichrist will persecute them, they will flee to Petra after he declares himself God in the temple he will build. And then God will save them instead of the millennial kingdom. Read Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah 11, Micah 4, Zechariah 2, 11. And there's so many passages on the kingdom, it's amazing. You're going to blow your mind how much of the millennial was here from chapter 10 all the way down, or chapter 9, all the way to 14. It's just, this prophet is just, he got an overdose, man. It was amazing. Incredible, incredible scriptures that we have nowhere else that just fill in the blanks and just give us an incredible picture of that future time. Lord, we thank you. We worship you. We thank you for tonight. We pray that you would deal with our hearts and we thank you for just the certainty of your word. And the Lord, though it may be something that we may doubt at times, we know that you cannot lie. And though in spite of the times that we live in or the situations or the things that may happen in our life or if you tarry in the next generation, it makes no difference. Nothing will stop you from setting up your kingdom and having Israel reigning with you, Lord. And so, Lord, we just thank you for your love for us as a church. We thank you for your goodness. We pray, Lord, we would continue to grow in the knowledge of your Son. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Or maybe you're over the internet. If you believe that Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, then you can call upon him. He sits at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for you. And he says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you shall be saved and he will forgive you of all your sins. Give to you a new heart. Give to you new life, give to you a new spirit, give to you a new mind, give you new marching orders, the word of God. It's by grace through faith, not of yourself, but it's a gift of God. So if you want to be born again, this is your prayer as you ask Jesus to forgive you. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.